Turn, if you would, to the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll find it on page 250 in the Book of Forms and Prayers, then 893 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, Lord's Day 44. I want to read the questions and answers, 114, 115, that have to do with the law of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. Question and answer 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments, that is the Ten Commandments, perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. And then to the Word of God, to the letter of Paul to the Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, I want to pick up the reading at verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. Galatians 5. You'll find that on page 1239. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's the word of the living God. 
Let me start this sermon this evening by a couple of quotations, and you try to think of where these might have been written. The first is this one. The fighting is certain to be heavy, bitter, and costly. You must not expect early results. We should be prepared for local reverses as well as success. No one can say how long this phase of the war may last, but we have every reason for confidence in the final outcome. And then the next quote. The tide has turned. The free world or the free men of the world are marching together to victory. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Now you might think that I've come across those quotations in my studies in some theological textbook or perhaps some book to help us fight against sin. After all, as we read in Galatians 5 verse 17, Uh, The Christian is a battleground between the forces of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness as they vie for superiority in the life of the believer. The Christian is a person who is always at war. And it does sound like those quotations are said in that context, but they aren't. The first quotation was from our prime minister some 80 years ago, Mackenzie King, as he addressed the troops on D-Day on June 6, 1944, as he announced to the nation that the Allies had invaded Europe on the beaches of Normandy, France. And so there he tells them that the battle will be difficult, they should not expect early results. There will be local reverses as well as success. We don't know how long the war will last, but there will be victory in the end. And the second is a quotation from General Eisenhower of the American army as he tells them, his troops on June 6, 1944, that they are making a significant attack on the German forces, which will undoubtedly lead to victory. So these are in the context of D-Day. This is a reference to June 6, 1944, when Operation Overlord, which consisted of American, British, and Canadian troops, some 155,000 of them, stormed the beaches of Normandy, in order to gain a beachhead in Europe, from which then to dismantle the German forces. And all historians would say that that attack on June 6, 1944, was the decisive turning point in the war in Europe. There would still be battles after that. There would still be violent struggles between the Germans and the Allies. But for all intents and purposes, June 6, 1944 was the beginning of the end of the war. That was D-Day. Victory Day would not come until 11 months later, on May 8, 1945. And in between, there were constant battles. 
Now, of course, as a minister of the gospel, I'm not here to give you a history lesson, but what I am doing is using the history of the war in Europe, as many theologians have done throughout the history since then, to illustrate for you what it means to fight the Christian fight, what it means to be involved in the Christian warfare against sin and Satan, and what it is that the Holy Spirit does to equip us for war. Of course, this is in the continuing series on the work of the Holy Spirit, and this evening I want to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of holiness, as He works in our lives to make us holy. With the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, at the headwaters of human history, the whole world came under the dominion of Satan. They all come under his tyranny. He becomes the ruler of this world, the prince of the air. And his malevolence against God's creation is evident. So there's always attacks and harassments as he seeks to encourage creation and humanity in particular to rebel against the God who created them in the first place. And Satan's malevolence is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. But there's another theme that runs throughout Scriptures, and that is this promise that someday someone would come who would crush the head of Satan and bring deliverance and liberty to the people of God. This was a promise that was promised throughout the Old Testament Scripture, and there was this longing expectation for that deliverer to come, for someone to make this massive assault on our enemy and to bring liberty. And that promise was finally realized when Jesus Christ, the God-man, arrived on the scene some 2,000 years ago. He is the serpent crusher. He is the Messiah, the great king who came to fight against the enemies of the people of God and to lead them to victory. And you can see this throughout the ministry of our Lord Jesus as he beats back the power of sin and Satan and darkness in the world, as he delivers people from demon possession, frees them from death and from the maladies of sin like blindness and lameness. But you see, the high point of Jesus' ministry in the cross of our Lord Jesus He himself describes it that way in John 12, verse 31, that the cross is the time when the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the Lord Jesus, in weakness, found his greatest strength. And in the weakness of the cross and in the death of his substitutionary life, as he dealt with sin and bore in himself the judgment of sin, Satan's power was broken. In fact, theologically speaking, the cross is Christ's D-Day. It is the decisive assault. For all intents and purposes, though Satan might continue to rage on, for all intents and purposes, Satan no longer will win His doom is sure. His destruction is certain. He will undoubtedly and without any hesitation, we can say he will undoubtedly be 
destroyed with finality. The cross marks D-Day. But Victory Day has not yet arrived. And so Christians, those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, live in the midst of this struggle. They are in Christ, but they also still have the contagion of sin. They are delivered from the power of sin, but the presence of sin is so prominent in our lives. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we live on earth. We live in the midst of this world that is still harassed by Satan as he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And our lives are marked by violence and skirmishes with sin and Satan and temptations and hardships and struggles. We live in between times, between the D-Day victory of the cross of Christ and the final victory when Christ returns at the end of time to forever banish this world from all of the deleterious effects of sin and Satan so that we would live in freedom and joy where sin will only be a memory and when we will be able to serve our God with perfection. We live in between times. And Christ, the ascended ruler, the one who sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father, in order to enable us to live as citizens of heaven in this world on earth, Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That is the most prominent name given to the Spirit, which tells us that one of His most prominent works is to make us holy. That's the goal of the Spirit of holiness. We are created, of course, after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness and with knowledge, but sin has ruined us. There's only a smattering of the image of God left within us. And the whole of humanity is turned against God. We've we've thrown in our lot with the enemy, with Satan. We follow the, the prince of the world of this air, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the fall has brought upon us, that by nature we're a mess. But God has come to us in Jesus Christ, and He has recreated us, and He recreates us to be after His image again. His design for us is to restore us not just to the pristine glory that we had in the Garden of Eden, but to make us even better than we were in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, though we were without sin, There was always the possibility that we would fall into sin. But God's design for us is not only to make us without sin, to recreate us to be sinless creatures, but to recreate us to be sinless creatures without ever the possibility of us falling into sin ever again and bringing dishonor to our God and ruin to ourselves. In fact, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, God's design for us is that we would be holy as 
He is holy. Now that's easy to say, but what does it look like to be as holy as God is holy? After all, God is a spirit and has no body as we do. And God does not live in our, on earth, assaulted by our enemy like we are, with all of the frailty, frailties of humanity living in a world that's under the curse of sin. So what does it mean that we would be holy as God is holy? Well, if you give it a little bit of thought, the answer will actually be quite easy. Because who is God who has taken our flesh and has come to live in our world to experience what we experience, the weakness of the flesh like tiredness and hunger and thirst, and to live in a world where Satan can assault, where the world can harass? Well, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So that we can say the Spirit's design, when it says, when we say the Spirit's design is to make us as holy as God is holy, we can also say the Spirit's design is to make us exactly like our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect image of God. He's the radiance of God's glory in His humanity. So if you want to know what holiness looks like, what the holiness of God looks like, in whom there is light and no darkness at all, you only need to look at the Lord Jesus because that's what holiness looks like in human form. And the Spirit's work is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit's work is to, to make us look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. In fact, we can say even more than that the Spirit wants us to look like Christ. We can say it this way, that the same Spirit who was at work in Christ is the Spirit who has been given to us to make us like Christ. And so the success of the Spirit in our Savior's life is the same success that He aims for in our lives. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to look like Christ? It means, of course, to be obedient to all of the commandments of God. It's not for nothing that uh, three times uh, Pilate came out to speak to the crowds and say, I can find no fault in this man, because he couldn't, because Jesus was one who was fully committed to all the commandments of God. He never had any other gods. He never misused the name of the Lord. He never uh, broke the fourth commandment. He never stole. He never committed adultery. He never coveted. He was fully obedient to, to God's commandments. But remember, obedience is not simply a matter of externality. And so if you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, if you look at His character, it was a character that was full of grace and kindness and compassion and holy zeal for the Lord. In fact, Christ is the perfect man, and perfection means that there are no traces whatsoever of the works of the flesh that the Apostle Paul delineates here in Galatians 5. 
So there was no hint of sexual immorality or impurity or sensuality or idolatry or sorcery or enmity or strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. None of those were in our Lord's life. You could take a microscope and look at His life with minute detail, and and you wouldn't see a trace of any of these things. On the contrary, what you would see in the life of our Lord Jesus is that His life was characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit was upon Him, and the fruit of the Spirit was prominent in our Savior's life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's the design of the Spirit in your life, to make you like that, to be kind and gentle and compassionate and gracious and fully committed to doing the whole will of God. And this is the process of the Spirit. I love how the Catechism says this, that uh, we never stop striving and we never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. That is what is awaiting the people of God. We struggle now against sin, And the Spirit works within us to fight against sin. And that will be the process that goes throughout our whole life and will continue until either we die and see Jesus or until Christ returns in glory. And then instantaneously, perfection. And it is a process in this life. And sometimes you'll find sin is easily rooted out of your life. Sometimes you'll struggle with sin for the totality of your Christian life. One of my minister friends, perhaps acquaintances, I spent some time with him in Scotland some years ago. He preached in my congregation there. Harry Reader died at the age of 75 last week, Thursday, drove into the back of a dump truck instantaneously in glory. He says that when he was a, first a Christian, uh, before he was a Christian, he said his life was, was marred by blasphemous and vulgarity. He says he shudders to think of the things that came out of his mouth before he had come to know Christ. And he says when the Lord changed him, He immediately took that sin away. It was not something he ever struggled with again. In fact, he says the marvelous thing about grace is that he took this vile, vulgar mouth and cleansed it by his spirit to use for the proclamation of the gospel. And then he drew uh, an illustration from that. He says sometimes God microwaves sin out of your life. It takes no no time at all. It's, It's there, you're convicted of it, and it's gone. But he says sometimes it's more like the process of a crock pot. The sin is stewing for years, and bit by bit is being removed. And uh, finally it will on the day, but it might be a struggle that you encounter for all of your life. It's a process. 
the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of holiness is working in you to change you bit by bit, sometimes more quickly than other times, so that you look increasingly like Jesus, so that he looks at you and sees his own reflection in you. And you should be able to see that in your life. It's probably not a good thing to examine yourself in that regard when you're at your worst, but when you're at your best. And take a long enough period of time to reflect on. And if you look back as a Christian two, three, four, five years, you'll realize that you're no longer what you once were, that God has been ridding you of sin. You're kinder, you're gentler, you're more conscientious, you're less lazy, you're more devoted. That's because the Spirit has been at work in your life. And even as you are not now what you once were, so you will not be in 10 years what you are now, because that process continues. And then when you see Christ, the process is over, and you are as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So that's the goal of the Spirit of holiness. Well, how does He do that in our lives? And it's important to know that He does it in our lives because we cannot do it on our own. We are no match for Satan. I mean, if, if Adam in perfection could not withstand the temptations of Satan, then how do we think we could with the residue of sin that is still within us? So how does the Spirit transform us from one degree of glory to another? Well, I have written down here six things that I want to trace out. I think I made the mistake this morning of saying I just have a few things to say in closing, and you might have thought that it would soon be over, but then I went on for another 15 minutes. So I'm not going to say I have a few things in closing, but I do have six things that I want to highlight for you and the Spirit's work in our lives. First of all, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. He works faith in us so that we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the moment we do, we are transformed. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Or think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, uh, verse 11. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, this is radically important for our understanding of the Christian gospel. We are not what we once were. It's not that we're just like the unbelievers and we just have the Spirit to help us to be better than we are. No, we have been united to Christ so that believers are no longer under the power of sin. We have been freed. We are no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. There has been a decisive break in our Christian life. 
It is, you could say, it is our own personal D-Day. Things will never be the same again when the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ because we share in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so though the presence of sin is still there, the power of sin is gone. That's the first thing the Spirit does. He unites us to Christ. Secondly, the Spirit works in us to change our desires. He gives us new affections, new longings, new interests. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 17. He says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Now listen to this. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what do we want to do as Christians? How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, you know you're a Christian if you have desires to do what is right, if it's your aim to please God. Because remember how the catechism defines us in our sin, in our sinful nature. We hate God and we hate our neighbor. But that's not true of a Christian. A Christian loves God and loves his neighbor and wants to do what is right and is grieved when he cannot do what he wants to do, when, when there's so much opposition he feels within him and all around him, he laments the fact that he cannot serve God with a pure heart, that he so often falls into sin, that he doesn't always do what he wants to do. No, the Holy Spirit works in the believer new desires so that there is this universal longing, or sorry, this longing for universal holiness. We hate sin as Christians, not because of the consequences of sin, nor because of how it will affect our reputation, but we hate sin because our God hates sin. Our Redeemer has died for sin to free us from that, and our longing is, as the people of God, to do the things that God wants us to do. So the Holy Spirit changes our desires, transforms us, gives us new longings, new direction, new interests, new passions, new desires. Then thirdly, the Holy Spirit of God works in us this holiness by convicting us of where we have fallen short or where we fall short of the glory of God. He does this, of course, through the Word of God. As you read the Word, you learn how we ought to live, sometimes because of express statements like flee sexual immorality. Sometimes we are convicted through the character we read about of our Lord Jesus, or we read about the Apostle Paul, and these men are models for us to aspire to in the Spirit works through the Word and works in our conscience, convicting us of our sins and shortcomings and, and uh, impressing upon us the need for change, sometimes radical change in our life. He works in us through the warnings of Scripture, just like we read in Galatians 5. The Apostle Paul warns these Galatian Christians that those who do such things, that is, those who do the works of the flesh, well, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you read that as a Christian, and you shudder, you think. Those are 
all too often they're evident in my life, and I'm being warned that if I do these things, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. And He convicts you, and He breaks you, and He humbles you so that you seek His grace and strength. Or think of the way you're convicted at times through the fellowship. This is why Christian fellowship is so important, and particularly Christian fellowship with men and women who will challenge your Christian life. Not those who will join you in your sin and carelessness. You don't need that. But you need men and women and young people who have zeal and who are stellar for the Lord, who are pursuing holiness, and and just being with them. You might know this yourself. Just being in their presence is so convicting. And you say, by the grace of God, that's how I want to be. I want to have that kind of zeal. That young person is willing to, to, to bear the rejection of friends for the sake of Christ. That's how I want to be. I'm far too timid, far too careless, far too interested in what people think about me. I want to be more like him or, or more like her. I want to be more like that godly saint who is so patient in all the midst of, of the tr- trials and difficulties and challenges of their life. There's no grumbling. There's no complaining against God. There's just glad acceptance of the will of God. That's how I want to be. And so the Holy Spirit works through the Word. He works through your conscience. He works through Christian fellowship to convict you of where you are falling short. And then uh, the fourth thing is the Holy Spirit strengthens you for the fight. As I mentioned, you have no, no ability to do this in yourself, and so the Spirit comes alongside. He's our helper. He encourages us. He refreshes us. He helps us to see the best way forward. He equips our hands for war, our fingers for battle, the psalmist says. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, without the Spirit, we we could not fight against sin. But because the Spirit is working in us against the flesh, we are enabled to work against sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, He reminds us of the blessings that are ours in Christ. You see, one of the greatest, greatest tactics that Satan uses to get us to sin is discouragement. He wants us to wallow in self-pity, to feel miserable, to not realize all the privileges that are ours as the children of God. And so though he cannot destroy our relationship to God, that is inviolable, He does attempt to destroy our sense of our relationship with God because he knows that the more discouraged we are, the more defeated we will be in the fight against sin. And so the Spirit counteracts that. The Spirit reminds us of all the blessings that are ours. He takes the things of Christ and he reveals them to us and he tells us that we are the children of God. We ought not to be living as if we're the children of Satan, as if we have uh, no strength to fight. No, we are God's children. He loves us with an everlasting love, and He cares for us tenderly. He knows our weakness. He remembers that we are dust, and He comes alongside to encourage and refresh us. We are the children of God. He reminds us that our sins are all forgiven. You might think, well, that's counterintuitive. It, it would be better for the Spirit to remind us that our sins are not forgiven because then we would be less likely to sin. 
No, it's not biblical logic. In fact, the less confident you have that your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, the less confident you are of that, the more likely you will give yourself over to sin. But those who know they are forgiven and justified, they long to put off the sin that requires the death of the Savior because they long to please the Redeemer and their desire is to thank their God, the judge who has declared them not guilty. The Spirit works in us to remind us of the victory that is ours. It's a lot easier to fight a battle if you know in the end that you're going to win. It'd be discouraging to think that it's just a losing battle. Why even fight then? It's just going to end up in a bad way anyway. But no, the the Spirit does remind us of ultimate success. That's what uh, Prime Minister uh, Mackenzie King said to the troops or to the nation in, in June 1944. We have every reason for confidence in the final outcome. This is what General Eisenhower said. The tide has turned. We will accept nothing less than full victory. We will win. The, this is beyond dispute, and the Spirit reminds us of that, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, and that victory belongs to us as the children of God. And then he reminds us of the hope of heaven. If you do these sorts of things, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. And so the hope of heaven is held out for the people of God. Press on. This day the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. Just hold on. It's tough. It's excruciatingly difficult. You have to resist. You have to deny yourself. You have to say no. And it's wearisome. But just hold on. It won't be forever. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will come in glory. And then the battle will be over. And victory will be yours. And then the Spirit, sixthly, He baptizes us into the body of Christ. The older I get, the more... I treasure Christian fellowship, the example, the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not fighting this battle alone. The Christian is not a gladiator who fights single-handedly against the enemy, but the Christian church is the army of God. We're soldiers of the cross, and we look out for each other. We encourage each other. At least that's the way it ought to be. We refresh each other. We help each other to press on. Don't give up now, brother. It won't be long. Keep going. Once more. Another attack. Resist again. It'll be okay. We'll win. We'll win. And so as brothers and sisters, baptized by the Spirit into one body, we have encouragement all around us to fight the good fight of faith and to gain the victory. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We've received the Spirit of holiness, and He's been given to make us holy. So, what does that mean? Well, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, 
let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's press on. Let's hate sin. Let's pursue holiness. Let's hate what is evil. Love what is good. Let us make it our aim to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, both externally and internally, to be Christ to one another and to the world around us, to demonstrate that our God is a God of greatness and power. It's it's not just that He can forgive us our sins, though that's wonderful, but He can transform us to make us like His Son so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. As the troops went into battle on June 6, 1944, General Eisenhower said, Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And I do not say good luck, but I say let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit of holiness upon this great and noble undertaking of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ until the day we see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and seeing him become like him. And won't that be a marvelous day to be able to worship the God of our salvation without anything to mar it and to displease him in the slightest. Press on, and may God give us the grace. Let's pray. Lord, our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, and that we have received the spirit of holiness to make us more and more like our elder brother. We pray that you would impress upon us the life and example of our Lord Jesus, that we would walk in his steps, and that we would follow him, becoming more and more like him to the praise of your glorious grace. Forgive us for our carelessness, for the way that we uh, give in to sin, make ourselves allies of sin, thinking we can control it. We pray that we'd have a holy hatred of everything that displeases you and a passionate love for everything that is right and pure and godly and that we might pursue that for your glory. We are thankful that obedience is always for our blessing, that uh, your glory and our good are not at odds with one another. So grant us your spirit in rich measure, we pray, and give us grace that we might not resist or quench him, but that his work might have full flower in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.